Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books Network and to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Duncan McCargo, a host on the channel. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Jan Pung Tong Pakwakapan, who is an associate professor of international relations at the Faculty of Political Science, Chulalongkorn University, Thailand. She's the author of Infiltrating Society, the Thai military's internal security affairs, which is out from ISIS publishing in Singapore in 2021. Ajahn Pung Tong, welcome to the new books in Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thank you for organizing this session for me. I really appreciate it. So Infiltrating Society is a very important book about Thailand's military and the country's politics more broadly, in a sense. And we often say that books break new ground, but this time there's really no exaggeration in that claim. I've got a little confession to make. Isis did ask me to write a blurb for the back of the book, which I did, but somehow it's not on the back of the book. So you heard it first here on the New Books Network. Here goes. The Thai military are armed bureaucrats who do not fight wars. In this important book, Pung Tong Pawakapan demonstrates just how deeply the Royal Thai Army is engaged in socioeconomic and political activities aimed at mobilizing and manipulating Thai citizens while subordinating civilian actors and agencies to military control. In recent years, the Cold War era Internal Security Operations Command, or ISOC, has re-emerged as a powerful force, exerting an extraordinary degree of authority and initiating a rather alarming range of troubling schemes. Infiltrating society is essential reading for anyone who needs to understand some of the darker realities of today's Thailand. So, Ajahn, maybe we can start with a bit of an overview. Thailand's hardly uh-huh. unique, even in Southeast Asia, in having a prominent political role for the military. So we see the same in Myanmar, the same in Indonesia. But unlike uh-huh. those other armies, the Thai military hasn't really fought anyone for centuries. They didn't spearhead a national independence struggle, and nor did they defend the country from a foreign enemy in recent times. So how come the army is so important in Thailand? Well, it's quite obvious that Thailand is a country that has the highest number of coup data. Mm-hmm. Even though we have elected civilian government from time to time, but the yes. army, the military, kept coming back in politics, seized the power with in some coup data. They even got supported from the people. Yes. So I try to understand how come the military kept coming back into politics, what kind of power that they have that we have been overlooked for for a long time. And what's your conclusion? Is there any particular reason why the army is so persistent in coming back and taking political power? Well, I think before I started this studies, I think when we're talking about the military, military, we only focus on its use of force. Mm -hmm. We see its significance only when it states the coup d'etat. Yes. But once we have the elected civilian government, we thought that military no longer involved in politics. But this was not the case mm-hmm. in Thailand. Actually, they still have power, infrastructure power, even though they may not exercise political power directly. But their infrastructure has spread out even in after counterinsurgency period. And they can use this political apparatus to undermine 
the credibility, legitimacy, and the work of elected civilian government. And I see the political apparatus of the military as part of the power of the Thai establishment. Right, absolutely. I mean, one of the main themes that comes out from your book, and I think not everybody is really aware of this, is just how far the Royal Thai Army is involved in so-called development, despite the fact that since 2011, Thailand has actually been an upper middle income country. In other words, basically a developed country. Every army region still has a development division that's supposed to be engaged in socioeconomic development projects. So how did this big development role for the Thai military come about? The developmental role of the military began since the counterinsurgency period. It's part of the so-called political offensives used mm-hmm. by the Thai state to fight with the communist movement, Communist Party of Thailand. This so-called political offensive involves development, mm-hmm. psychological involved mass organization. This political offensive approach came from the idea that to win the war over communism. The Thai state have to win the hearts and minds of the people, eventually those in the rural area. So they introduced so many developmental works, mm-hmm. development projects in, in the rural area, and a major part of it involves the royal projects as well. So this is a way to win the hearts and minds of the people, injecting development projects and the money, but then... This kind of project supposed to stop when the CPT, the Communist Movement of Thailand, fell in the mid-1980s. But it didn't stop. They still continue to do these development projects in a different uh, legitimacy. After the end of the counterinsurgency period, there's a kind of legitimacy for the military mm-hmm. to say that they still have to involve in development, in the national development, because the legitimacy say that even though Thailand no longer have to face communist threat, but there are other bigger threats to the Thai national security, that is the poverty. As long as we cannot solve the national poverty, communists can keep coming back to become a, a national mm-hmm. threat to Thailand. So since poverty is part of national security, the military claim that they have to get involved in this kind of project. So the new development projects in the post-counterinsurgency period involve people in the city, in the urban areas, and spread throughout the nation. And the development projects in the post-counterinsurgency period, Mm -hmm. many of them took place in the urban area, such as the Monkey Cheek Project. People may think that Monkey Cheek Project happened in the rural area, but actually this project, the first one took place in the area surrounding Bangkok. It's a project that initiated by King Ramanai, King Pumiphon, yes. to prevent the flood in Bangkok. Yes. But when the king initiated this idea, he talked to the military to do it. So it's some kind of providing legitimacy mm-hmm. for the military to get involved in the new development projects. Yes. Now, that's an extraordinary thing that even in 2022, there's all this military development capacity in a country that's already, for most practical purposes, 
developed. I mean, related to this, there's another key topic of your book. We've already mentioned the ISOC, the Internal Security Operations Command, and that was established in 1965, again, at the height of the Cold War, ostensibly to combat communist insurgency. What's the significance of ISOC in the story that you tell in the book? ISOC was created in 1965 to carry out the so-called political offensive. It exists and is based on uh, the communist movement, right? Mm -hmm. But then it continued. It existed right after the fall of communism. I actually also wonder as well when I, I began this project why they still keep ISOC, even the civilian government didn't mm -hmm. try to abolish ISOC. But then I have the conclusion that the existence of the ISOC allow the military to have a command over civilian bureaucratic agencies. That is the power of the ISOC in existence. So this is quite a big issue for me, you see. I think there's no democratic country that allow a small military agency to have a power to control civilian bureaucratic agencies, even this happened even when we are under democratic government. Right. I mean, I had the experience once of interviewing a senior officer in ISOC who I thought was an army general, but he told me, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm a civilian now. I transferred to ISOC, but I'm sure after that he transferred back into the army. So there seems to be just this revolving door between this so-called civilian positions and effectively military ones. It's a really, really blurred distinction, isn't it? Yeah, you see, officially... The ISOC is under the office of the Prime Minister. Yes. So it looks like the civilian agency. But when you look inside the ISOC, all the commanding position, the position that make a decision, a planning strategy, are the army officers. Right. It's an extraordinary situation. So you've already talked about military coups, and we've seen two of them in recent years, one in 2006 and another one in 2014. And we know that Thailand notionally returned to civilian rule in 2019, but we also know that the current prime minister is still the very same unelected former army commander who seized power almost eight years ago, General Priyut chan So how has the 2014 coup affected the political standing of the military in the period since then? I think in relation to my research, General Bayou is very fond of ISOC. I saw uh, a number of orders made by uh, General Bayou since he was uh, the army commander that he trying to, he told the ISOC and the army to try to expand the so-called protocol offensive of the military, expand development project, expand the number of mass belong to the organization under the command of the ISOCs. Mm. He also used the mass of the ISOC in a way that beneficial to his political standing and the political position of the junta. Before that, there was a referendum for the draft constitution of 2015 referendum. Before the referendum took place, the army commander at the time told the press that the army can mobilize its mass of over 100,000 mm. to participate in this campaign for referendum. And I think we can be sure that having the mass of the military to involve in this campaign is not to boycott the constitution, mm -hmm. it's to promote and, yes. and to try to motivate people to the draft constitution. This coup d'etat in 2014. The military have expanded its control over the society through mm -hmm. its political apparatus in, in many ways. And lately, 
I saw that the military are trying to use the I saw in its mask to counter mm-hmm. the men of the youth, mm-hmm. which emerged yeah. in the late 2020. Yes. We saw the rise of the youth movement in several right. provinces throughout right. the country, right? But at the same time, I also uh, noticed that there are the movement of the Yellow Church in so many uh, provinces throughout the country. And look at the way they organize uh, the demonstration. These are the loyalist demonstration wearing yellow shirts, mm. carrying the pictures of the king and the queen. Yes. Their campaign is counter the youth movement, which called for the reform of the military and the monarchy. Yes. Even though their number may not be so high in comparison to the youth, but this happened in so many provinces. Mm. I would say it is likely that it happened in every provinces because the ISOC have a branch in every provinces throughout the country. This is a way to mobilize and to utilize this m a t to counter democratic movement. Right. So yes, there's obviously a lot more detail in the book about this whole phenomenon of how, in particularly post 2014, the military has been able to deploy a variety of strategies to try and increase its influence and promote its particular kind of ideological perspective. You talk a lot in the book about how the military has been involved in creating what you call state-dominated mass organizations over a long period of time. Can you tell us something about these state-dominated mass organizations and give some examples of how they operate? This state-dominated mass organization uh, began during the counterinsurgency period as well to counter the student movement in the 1970s. Many of us, and you, I'm sure that you realize that the right wing movement. That is under the the influence of the ISOC involved in the student massacre at Tamasat University in 1976. They did not disappear mm-hmm. from politics at all. Actually, I found out that after the 1976, the idea of having state-dominated organizations still going on among the military leaders, such as General Prem Tenusulanon, Kriya s a c h a m a n a n I think they see the benefit of having this mass under the control that they can use the mass to support their program. This bad organization, some of them have a well-established organization. Government can use the budget to keep it running. These organizations, such as the defense volunteers, Tosopachor, Thai Aksapcha, so many organizations, the National Reserve Base organization. And there are also mass organizations which loosely organize. Most of them are villagers in the provinces, and this is mean that they they can use the national budget to run this mass organization. This mass organization often go along with the psychological program, indoctrination program, and development projects. In this last several years, say, since the coup d'état in 2014, I saw the expansion of the mad organization to involve uh, students in the provinces and in the big cities such as Bangkok as well. They mobilize students to be under that indoctrination program, so the royalist nationalist indoctrination. I think this is partly because they realize that the royalist ideology has. Been in decline among the mm-hmm. youth. So if you Google, say I saw and student training, you yes. will see lots of news, a lot of picture, and YouTube of how they mobilize new people into their program. 
Right. I think some listeners to this podcast are probably familiar with Catherine Bowie's wonderful book about the village scout movement. And that's a book from the yeah. 1990s yeah. talking about the 1970s. And we thought that stuff yeah. was, was all history. That was 50 years ago. But what you very convincingly show is that, no, it's alive and well. These same movements or similar movements have been staying active and fostered continuously by ISOC and other military-related units mm-hmm. all these years. It's quite an extraordinary yes. story. I mean, there's another function, another duty of the state-dominated man is to keep surveillance for the government, for the state. Students were trained to keep watch on the cyberspace. Mm-hmm. If they saw anyone posting something challenging the monarchy, they have to report to their, maybe their supervisors. And in the villages, the villagers are told to keep an eye on the richer people. Yes. If there is a movement activity of the richer, they have to report to the military in the area. So it's is another deal that continued from the Cold War period. Right. These movements became the eyes and ears of the authorities yeah. in, in all parts of the country. On New Books Network, we love to encourage our listeners to read all of the books we feature from cover to cover, but I think it's fair to say that lots of people are going to pick up Infiltrating Society and they're going to go straight to Chapter 5, which starts on page 119, because that chapter's called Remobilization of the Royalist Mass since 2006. And even for someone like me who follows Thailand quite closely, there's lots of really new and interesting material in that chapter. But perhaps first of all, what is it that you mean by the Royalist Mass? Those who subscribe to the royal nationalist mm-hmm. ideology. But this royalist mass were very strong during the Cold War period, during the counterinsurgency period. The evidence of it is the massacre of the Sudan in 1976. Now, even though I say that the number of people being mobilized to join the indoctrination program nowadays is quite big. I would say over 2 million people. Yes have attended this kind of program. But it doesn't mean that most of them, or even majority of them, subscribe to the royalist ideology. Many of them that I talk to attend the program because this program actually worked through the Ministry of Interior, mm-hmm. through the Kamnan Puyai Ba, the head, yes. the village head, and the yes. sub-district head. This village head always told uh, the people that you have to join the program. We, we promised that at least 100 people will mm-hmm. attend the program. If we can achieve this goal, our village, our area, we get the budget right. to, for some yeah. kind of development yes. project. Yes. And also even met some richer people who against the military, they also have to attend this program because they don't want to be viewed as being rebellious. Yes. And being against the military. So you have to attend it. And students, they have to do it because the, the school told them to do, mobilize them to do. They have to sit there half a day or one day mm-hmm. to listen to this lecture by the military. But yes. it doesn't mean that they just subscribe to what they heard. Even though I would say that not the majority of them subscribe to their ideology, say, but this kind of gap is still scary. Say, if only just 10% of the people who attend this program, believe in their energy. They can become strong royalist support and they are ready to stand up against mm-hmm. student movement. And these people, when they join this counter-democracy movement, they know that the state, the police, the military tend to 
look away from their activity, mm-hmm. even though they all tend to be more violent. So just violent that they can get away because they are on the government side. So yeah, I think I think it is scary and it's called democratic democratization of the Thai society. Yes, I mean I've come across very similar things during fieldwork in the deep south in the Malay Muslim communities where numbers of people are sent from each village to take part in these rather ritualized activities and it's very difficult to know how effective they are but they're, they're certainly creating a general climate of fear that makes it more difficult for people to operate freely mm-hmm. how exactly do you think the military tried to do this remobilization of the royalist mass what kind of techniques are involved in that process they just various kind of measure to motivate people to join the program The first thing is to increase the salary or benefit of the member of the well-established mass organization, and they also provide some kind of connection to the people. Yes. You see, Thai people they love connection because connection help help their life make their life easier in right. many ways. Yeah. Especially the poor doesn't seem to have many resources for their living. They provide some kind of development project for the community. People love to have those things. And they also have program like provide a scholarship for the members of the mass mm. organization. Right. So the projects are often quite well incentivized in various ways. Both sticks and carrots are built into the programs. And one of the most intriguing sections of the book is where you talk about the emergence of royalist communists. Can you explain what's a royalist communist? <laughs> There is such an expensive program. Mm-hmm. I see. This Royalist Communist actually originated from when the CPT dissolved and several 10,000 communist cadres yes. gave up their fight and resumed normal life. And the government at that time is a government of dictatorial power. It was when General Chowlit Yong Jayut was the army commander. Then the government promised that they will provide for the former cadres some kind of Incentive such as five cows mm-hmm. and five right of uh, land plot, so yeah. they can resume their normal life. It's reasonable, right? Yes. But then later, after the coup d'état in 2006, a new batch of ex-communist cadres came in to ask for a compensation because they said, I mean, the first program initiated by General Chowlet didn't include them. They were missed out. So they want taxi yeah. to provide them with a, a new grant. Ying Lak didn't do it. Mm-hmm. But when General Surajutulanon became a prime minister after the coup d'etat in 2006, he revived this program and gave the cadres over 100,000 each. Mm-hmm. And this is, we know that General Surajutulanon was one the army commander. And his father was an ex-communist too. So he has a yes. very good relationship with the communist cadres in the Northeast. Right. So I saw the program that this former communist became working with the ISOC in the Northeast and the Northern region. So when General Surayut stepped out from the prime minister, Ying Lakshinawa became a prime minister. A new batch of the former communists came to ask for a new program. They said they were missed out. Ying Lak didn't give in, but... Okay, after General Surayut Turanon stepped down from the Prime Minister, it was uh, then later a visit became a Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. He continued his program and increased the payment to over 200,000 
This was initiated by Suthev Thersuban, his mm-hmm. deputy prime minister. And the payment was issued to the ex-communists just less than a month before the general elections. So we see that the F, what kind of effect that the opposite government and the Democrat Party want to have. But then the Yiglashinawa refused to continue this program. He said no more. Right. But then after then the coup d'etat came again in 2014. The government of Rajuchan Ucha revived this, pay out 200,000 for each ex-communist. I think almost 10,000 people benefit from this program under General Prayutan Osha. So overall, we have paid several thousand million baht to these ex-communists so that they can become a supporter of the Yellow Church government. Right. You see, their activity is mainly to support the, the activity of military government and the opposite government. Yes, so the ex-communists were very generously incentivized to perform their loyalty to the Thai nation in a variety of ways. And it's an example of the strange and murky world where the anti-communist Thai military becomes a major channel of support for people of formerly communist inclinations. It's really hard to believe some of the stories that you tell. Actually, a few months ago, I saw news that Thamanat, the yes. key actors of Rajutan yes. Ucha, talking to the ex-communists in the Northeast again. And the people, this government taught to keep younger and younger. So we have a younger ex-communist now. Many of them, I can say that they are under 60 years old. That's not possible. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Being an ex-communist has become a lucrative business these days for yeah. certain people. Yes, obviously. Very intriguing. You touched on this already, but let me sort of come back to this point. How effective do you think these programs are? Because, as you say, it's easy to round up people to participate in things and much more difficult to get them to believe in them. So whilst you're able to study the programs, it's much more difficult to know how truly effective the programs are. I mean, do you think that without these programs, the Thai military or the conservative establishment would have less support than it does? I think it's less effective now, especially mm. among the youth. I saw that there's a great attempt in trying to mobilize the youth to join this program throughout the country. But I don't think the students now buy into this propaganda anymore. No. Among the old, many of them already believe in that ideology. So it doesn't change much. I think even among the old generation, many of them lost their illusion about this royalism already. But still, as I say, even though it's less effective than during the Cold War, but these people, they think that they can get away if they do something violating the laws. They can make it mean that democratization in Thailand is prone of violence by these uh, royalist people. Yes, and obviously we're about to start contemplating the next round of political change and upheaval in Thailand with another election about a year away now. I'm sure that during the run-up to that election, all the different sides in Thai politics are going to be trying to mobilize and infiltrate as much as they can. Are you following up on any of these topics for some future research project? Is there anything in particular you're looking out for at the moment? I don't have any new project in my yet, but I just try in these last few months, I was thinking about the nature of the Thai military. That's one thing that I said in the book, okay, before I get to the idea that I'm going to talk. That's one thing about the Thai military. When we, I'm talking about it, the Thai military is trying to infiltrate into the society. 
I mean that it's not just the ISOC or the Army. Now, so the development project, the socioeconomic project under the military has expanded a great deal. All the armed forces, whether it's the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, Supreme Commands, and the ISOC, they all have this socioeconomic program under them, yes. including this indoctrination program. Mm-hmm. This is different from the counterinsurgency period. During the counterinsurgency period, we only saw the role of the army and the ISOC in the socioeconomic sphere of the society. But now, all the armed forces involved in and their function seem to be redundant to the ISOC. And so, all this, it makes me think about the nature of the Thai army. I wonder if we can call it the operatorial state. You see, the operatorial state in other countries like the like Pakistan, Egypt, they don't have monarchy. But in Thailand, we have the monarchy, which have a superior power over the military. I wonder whether we can call it a royalist Praetorian mm-hmm. state, that the monarchy and military work hand in hand. Yes. They are supporting each other, even though the military is under the power of the monarchy. But in order to sustain their royalist power, the political system, they have been advancing the military political apparatus so much so that the Thai military now have achieved a Praetorian state. But it's just my idea that I'm coining and trying to think about it more seriously. So that might be the next project you're working on, trying to conceptualize and theorize that. <laughs> Not sure. Thank you very much, Ajahn Prongtong, for taking the time yeah. to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope that we've helped inspire interest in this really impressive book and in the big question of the continuing efforts of the Thai military to infiltrate and influence society that you highlight in that book. Thank you so much, Duncan, for having me. I'm Duncan McCarga. I've been in conversation with Poon Tong Pakwakapan, an Associate Professor of International Relations at the Faculty of Political Science, Chulongkorn University, who is the author of Infiltrating Society, the Thai Military's Internal Security Affairs, a book out from ISIS Publishing in 2021. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.